And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the life, has the Son, has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments to uh, use 1 John 1, 9 if necessary. Opportunity to get your focus on the message this morning and away from Christmas and Christmas shopping and parties and all of the other details and distractions of the season and to put our focus on that which never changes the immutable Word of God. Let's bow our heads together and pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study the mind of Christ, to learn how to think as you think, to put our focus on the written word that we may come to a greater understanding of the revealed word, that we may know you and knowing you, obey you, and through obedience under the filling of the Holy Spirit, advance to spiritual maturity, that we might glorify you. Father, we pray that you would Continue to protect us in this nation. We thank you for our president, for our leaders, for the events that have transpired in the last week with the capture of Saddam Hussein and other information gained. We thank you for uh, continued advances in the war against terrorism, and we pray that you would continue to protect this nation, that we may be able to uh, continue to support missionaries, to support Israel. Uh, that we may be able to continue that even though we are so diluted by human viewpoint and have become so immersed in cosmic thinking and anti-biblical thinking, that nevertheless this culture still shines as a somewhat dim, but it still shines as a beacon of truth in the world. Father, we pray that you would continue to challenge us as believers in this local church with your word that we would maintain a focus on your word, that despite the changes that take place in life, despite the ebb and flow of circumstances, that we might be grounded upon the immutable uh, word on the rock of Jesus Christ. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study this morning. Help us to understand in a more detailed way the person of our Savior. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Three weeks ago, we began a study on the person of Christ, who is Jesus Christ. Not just what he did, we've studied that many times, but who is Jesus Christ? The answer to that question is foundational because you cannot truly appreciate what he did if you do not understand who he is. For the answer to the question, who is Jesus, establishes his credentials to do what he did on the cross. We live in a time, as there have been many other times in the history of the church, when the person of Jesus Christ is under tremendous assault. I've pointed that out a number of ways, but today, especially since the the enlightenment of of the 18th century, the deity of Christ has come under tremendous attack. In the past, it has often been the true humanity of Christ that has been under assault, but today the assault is on the deity of Christ. The attempt is to reduce Jesus to just another human being. He might have been a great moral teacher. He might have been a religious innovator. He might have been some sort of revolutionary 
operating in uh, Palestine at the time, but he was certainly not God. He was certainly not the eternal creator who became incarnate in a human being. That's the way that modern man thinks. And today, and I, th- I think that there will be more and more assaults of this type, and you need to be aware of this, that have been uh, sort of encapsulated in this fictional work on the Da Vinci Code, and you look out across the books that are available in a local bookstore, and you have a lot of emphasis on these new, uh, on these Gnostic Gospels and other writings, and the claim that is made, and it's not a new claim. You know, I remember reading uh, Shirley MacLaine's Out on a Broken, uh, Out on a Limb, uh, a few years ago, and. Um, Oh, I hear she's got a new one out that, that, uh, something, oh, it's a play on that. It's, she's got a dog, it's about a dog. She's channeled her pet dog or something. I mean, just bizarre. But, and nevertheless, she made the same claim a few years ago that it's at the Council of Nicaea that the church voted on Jesus' deity. That this was some idea that came into the church from outside the church as a result of Greek philosophical thought. Nothing could be further from the truth, and we will uh, take time to study Nicaea and all that went on in the various church councils of the early church as they wrestled for over 300 years to be able to properly articulate the person of Jesus Christ. You, know, you and I take it for granted. We can roll off the tip of our tongue a definition of hypostatic union, that it's undiminished deity united with true humanity in one person forever, and we think we've accomplished something, and yet you don't realize perhaps that it took over 300 years for the theologians in the early church to craft that definition and to understand what the hypostatic union was all about in the relationship of the second person of the Trinity to the first person of the Trinity. And they wrote tomes of technical uh, discourse in order to work through all of the possible permutations that one can conceive of to describe the relationship to make sure that what they came up with correctly reflected what was taught in Scripture. They were not imposing something on the Scripture. They were trying to deal with all of the different statements in Scripture and then boil them down to three or four uh, pregnant sentences that were potent with the truth so that there would be nothing said that was wrong. Underlying the significance of the cross and the work of the cross is the person of Christ. If he is not who he claimed to be, then the cross did nothing. And Jesus made many claims, and the Bible made many claims about Jesus. And it is typical among apologists, those who are defending Christianity, to point out the truth that if Jesus isn't who the Bible claims him to be, then All Christians are nothing but fools. And if Jesus isn't who the Bible claims him to be and who he claimed to be, then he is not what most people want to make him, and that is some sort of good religious leader, some moral teacher or communicator, because he claimed, and the Bible claims from Genesis to Revelation, that he is undiminished deity that he is eternal God, that he is the creator. He is the second person of the Trinity who uh, has all of the attributes of deity. He is missing none of the attributes of deity, that he is eternal, and that he is the creator of everything under the authority of uh, of God the Father, who is the planner and architect of creation. That if he is not that person, then he was a liar. He was a bull-faced liar and the greatest deceiver of all times because he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father except by me. Now, that is an audacious claim unless it is true. If it's true, then there's nothing audacious about it whatsoever. It is just a simple statement of reality. But if you are not the only way to salvation, if you are not the only way to eternal life, if you are not the promised Messiah, then... You're a liar of the greatest, or you have deceived more people throughout history and are responsible for more deaths in history than any tyrant, any dictator that we can think of. 
And so if Jesus isn't who he claimed to be, then he is one of the most evil people in all of history, and he is a pernicious liar. And if he's not that, then he must have been insane, absolutely nuts, psychotic of the first order. And yet nothing that we have in the Scriptures or the few uh, bare references outside of the Scripture would support an idea that Jesus was nuts. So therefore you're left by force of logic to the fact that Jesus must be who he claimed to be, and that is one with God, the sent one from God, who came to die on the cross for our sins. Now, in Matthew, we started the series by looking at three, question raised, three questions raised in the Gospel of Matthew related to his person. Jesus wanted to make sure that people understood who he was. In Mark 8.27, we have an abbreviated version of the Matthew 16 passage. Here, Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, Who do men say that I am? However, the expanded version in Matthew 16:13, Jesus says, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And the emphasis there is on his humanity. That's the title, Son of Man, as we'll see in our study of the titles of Christ later this morning. And the answer was from uh, Peter that you are the Messiah, the promised one. And that term Messiah, as well as the term Son of Man, are terms that are loaded with significance from the Old Testament. You cannot understand the New Testament. Frankly, you cannot really understand the Gospels if you do not understand the Old Testament as the background. That is why I have spent now three hours with this morning on the Old Testament. And we will spend a couple of more weeks just looking at what the Old Testament teaches about the Messiah, about the Savior, about Jesus Christ. Because when Jesus Christ came... And he made statements, as did John the Baptist, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. He didn't explain what the kingdom of God was. They knew. When he said, who do men say that I, the son of man, am, the fact that he used the term son of man was clear. I mean, its meaning was clear to them. They did not need an explanation. They did not say, well, what do you mean son of man? Is that some kind of technical term, or what does that mean? They knew what it meant. They got it from the Old Testament. When he uses the term son of God, they knew what it meant from the Old Testament, as we'll see this morning. So these questions are pregnant with significance. And he says, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of God. Matthew 21.10, when he had come into Jerusalem after his uh, entry, all the city was moved saying, who is this? See, it's central in Matthew's gospel for people to identify who Jesus is in order to understand what he did. And then Jesus himself makes the point to the Pharisees when he says, what do you think about the Christ, that is the Messiah, whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And then he pointed out from Psalm 110, verse 1, that the Lord, that is Yahweh, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And Jesus used a sophisticated argument to show that, that the second Lord there, Adonai, is superior to David. He's David's Lord. And he is to sit at the right hand of Yahweh. Sitting at the right hand of a monarch is equivalent to uh, being equal in power and stature to that monarch. And so the sitting of Jesus, the session where he's seated at the right hand of God the Father, indicates that he is fully divine. Jesus is making a point that if Yahweh says to my Lord this statement, then that indicates that the my Lord of, of, da- of, uh, of David is also fully God. So there is this emphasis in the uh, Old Testament on the deity of Jesus Christ. And I pointed out that there are two streams of thought in the Old Testament about the Messiah. One is a stream of thought that emphasizes his deity. The other is a stream of thought that emphasizes his humanity. The two thoughts come very close to one another in many passages, but they never quite connect as they do in the New Testament in terms of identifying this as one person. Therefore, many Jews thought that there were would be two messiahs. There would be a suffering messiah and there would be a ruling messiah. But they understood more and more that this king, 
that was promised from the Old Testament must be more than human because no human could satisfy those those prophecies. Now, as we developed this, I pointed out last time that in the early church there were a couple of different heresies that arose in explaining the person of Christ. And in the early church, the problem wasn't the deity of Christ as it is today, but the problem was the humanity of Christ. Now, some of these we have we have uh, studied in the past uh, in terms of some of the challenges in the early church being the humanity of Christ, but there were two heresies that did uh, do damage to his full deity. The first heresy is known by the name Ebionites, E-B-I-O-N-I-T-E-S. And the Ebionites were a Jewish sect. They were sort of the successors of the Judaizers that Paul had to deal with in Galatians. And they regarded, regarded Jesus as the natural human son of Joseph and Mary. He was simply elected the Son of God. It's sort of an appellation or title. It doesn't have anything to do with, with deity, but that he's sort of elected to be the Son of God at his baptism. He's higher than the archangels, but he's not fully divine. That was their viewpoint. Then the second group of heretics were known, uh, heresy about the person of Christ, known as adoptionistic, the adoptionists. And in adoptionism, you have some point in time when Jesus is adopted as the Son of God. And usually this takes place uh, not at his birth, but at his baptism. And at his baptism, Jesus is then adopted. There's sort of a power surge that comes from God that infuses deity into Jesus. And so this was called dynamic monarchianism. Now, I'm introducing these phrases, these terms, these heresies to you one week at a time because I just don't want you to get all blown away by having to deal with a whole lot of church history and new terminology all at once. So each week we'll review these and add something new. But in the early church, after the close of the canon, you have three basic questions that are asked of Jesus over the first 500 years of church history. And if you understand these questions and the answers, you can pretty much walk your way through early church history. The first question is, who was Jesus before he came? Who was Jesus before he came? Is he fully God or is he some kind of creature? And this gave rise to a precise understanding of the Trinity. Now, the heresy that took place during this period was known as monarchianism. Monarchianism. From the root monarch, emphasizing king, and it focused on the fact that there is just one person in the Godhead, just one person, a a Unitarian view of God, a, a solitary monotheism. Now, there were two different views of monarchianism. The first view was called dynamic monarchianism, from the Greek word dunamis, meaning power. And that's where I, I got the idea of this power surge from God to Jesus at his baptism. And so dyna- dynamic monarchianism was a form of adoptionism. There was another form of monarchianism that's beyond the scope of what we're looking at that was called patripassionism. I love all these words. Patripassionism. You know what that means. Patri from father, passion for suffering. Latin term, the father suffers. And this was also called modalism, the idea that that there's only one God who expresses himself in one of three modes. One day he shows up, he's the father. The next day he puts on a different set of clothes and he's the son. The next day he puts on another set of clothes and he's the Holy Spirit. So if there's only one person and one nature, then this, it's the father on the cross. So the father suffers. It's not just the son. Those are simply, you know, terms that describe different modes of God's uh, revelation. But... The view that we're dealing with here is not the modalistic or patripassion view of, of monarchianism, but 
dynamic monarchianism, the infusion of deity in Jesus at, at baptism. So those are the two views, and basically they destroy the deity of Christ because he's not, he's not fully God. He's fully man, but he's not fully God, because to be fully God, he must be eternal. So that was the first thing we looked at in terms of the Scripture, was do the Scriptures teach that Jesus was eternal, that, that he did not have his beginning, his humanity began in the manger in Bethlehem, but Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, is eternal. And we looked at passages such as Micah 5.2, which teaches that his goings forth are from the days of eternity and that he would be born in Bethlehem. And Isaiah 9, 6, where he's called, and the most translations refer to him as the eternal father, and literally in the Hebrew it means father of eternity, which is a, a circumlocution or idiom for eternal. So Jesus is clearly said to be eternal. Other passages in the New Testament attribute a pre-existence, if not eternality, to Jesus. Passages such as John 1, 1. John 8:58, Colossians 1:16 and 17, Revelation 1:1. 1, 1. All of these passages talk about his not simple pre-existence, but also his eternal pre-existence. And then in the last lesson last week, we began to look at Old Testament teaching about the Messiah and his activity in the Old Testament. So what I've done logically is to start off by looking first at the eternal pre-existence of Jesus, and then second, at his temporal pre-existence. That is, his existence is pre-existence in time, but in the, in the Old Testament. His temporal pre-existence. So we have two categories there. We saw that his pre-existence in eternity past demonstrates full deity. And his pre-existence in the Old Testament demonstrates that that deity is undiminished deity. And we establish that by looking, first of all, at the names that are given to Jesus in the Old Testament. He is called and identified with Yahweh. And then when you get into the New Testament, there are various passages in the New Testament that quote Old Testament passages about Yahweh and attribute them to Jesus Christ. For example, Psalm 68:18 talks about Yahweh's ascent up the Temple Mount, and Paul uses that and applies it to Jesus when he talks about the ascension of Christ in Ephesians 4.8. Jesus is also called Elohim in Old Testament passages that are applied to him in the New Testament. Uh, the Psalm 110.1, which we just uh, read, uses uh, the term Adonai, another word the uh, Jews used in reference to God and applied that to Jesus. And then fourth, he is called a son in the Old Testament. Now that's about where we stopped last time, looking at the terminology of son as applied to Jesus. Now, this morning what I want to do is look at the doctrine of the sonships of Jesus. The doctrine of the sonships of Jesus. First point, there are six sonships of Jesus. Six titles related to sonship. There are six. Point number two, one of these sonships describes his deity. The other five sonships emphasize different aspects of his humanity. One emphasizes his deity, the other five emphasizes his humanity, and I will discuss those more fully when we get there. We'll cover them now, but I'll get into more detail with them when we get to the humanity. My approach here is simply this. Since deity is the point being challenged today, and I always, I always remember a statement by Martin Luther, the founder, father of the Reformation. Martin Luther made the statement that if we protect and defend the castle, at every point, except that point at which it is being assaulted, then we will lose the battle. And the point of assault today is not on the humanity of Christ, although that may happen in a few odd quarters. It is on the deity of Christ. So what I, my, my whole structure here is to look first of all at the deity of Christ and look at it in terms of pre-existence, then what the Old Testament teaches. Then we'll come back and we'll look at what the deity of Christ, what's taught about the deity of Christ in the New Testament. 
Then we'll come back and we'll focus on the humanity of Christ. We'll look at what is taught about the humanity of Christ in the Old Testament. You don't see him as human in the Old Testament as you see the second person in his pre-incarnate state as deity, but you will see the humanity of Christ taught in the Old Testament. Then we will look at the humanity of Christ as it is revealed in the New Testament, and then we will look at how they come together. That gets us to the incarnation and the virgin birth, which is the the key issue, the central point on the person of Christ is the virgin birth. The central doctrine, the central his or excuse me, the central historical event on the work of Christ is the cross. The central event on the person of Christ is, is the virgin birth. If you lose the virgin birth, that's why this was such a fought-over doctrine in the early 20th century in the what was known as the fundamentalist modernist controversy, that the virgin birth was fought over because if you lose the virgin birth, you don't have the hypostatic union. You have nothing but a man. That is why the virgin birth is not just some nice little secondary doctrine that uh, is just showing up some sort of miracle. It is fundamental to the incarnation. And if you do not have a, a God-man who is undiminished deity and true humanity in one person, you don't have a salvation. So we'll look at the, de- the stream of deity, then the stream of humanity, then we'll look at how they're put together in the hypostatic union, and that will then take us to those wonderful doctrines of the kenosis and the impeccability of Christ. And then, of course, we have to understand what in the world the Scripture means when it says that Jesus was tempted like we are. Well, if he can't sin, how could he be tempted like we are? So we have to understand that and to understand those three doctrines, the kenosis, the impeccability, and um, the temptations of Christ, we have to clarify all of that through the lens of those great early church theologians as they understood that, those doctrines, and came to articulate them at the councils of Nicaea, Ephesus, and Chalcedon, and then we're going to go to the implications of these. And all of this should only take us, a, you know, three or four weeks, right? <clears throat> Just wanted to see if anybody was still awake. Okay, the six sonships of Jesus. Point one, there are six. Point two, only one relates to deity. The other five relate to his humanity. Point three, the title is the son of Abraham. He's called the son of Abraham. This is taken from the genealogy in Matthew 1.1. So the very first verse in Matthew deals with the fact that he is the son of Abraham. This takes us, of course, back to the Abrahamic covenant, emphasizes that he is a Jew, but that he is, as Paul says in Galatians 4, he is the seed promised to Abraham. He's the son of Abraham. Point number four, he is called the son of David. So his second sonship title is son of David. This, too, is found in Matthew 1.1, and it emphasizes two things. First of all, it emphasizes his royalty, that Jesus is in the royal lineage of David, and that means, secondly, that it relates him to the Davidic covenant. It relates him to the Davidic covenant given in 2 Samuel uh, <clears throat> chapter 7, where God promised an eternal dynasty to David. Now, either that means either A, that a dynasty goes on and on and on, and there's always going to be somebody new being born, or that lineage is going to end in someone who is eternal. So there you get the implication, at least, that the descendant to which the, the Davidic covenant referred is eternal. The fifth point, the third title, is the son of Adam found in Luke 3.38, the son of Adam, and this emphasizes his humanity. Jesus is the last Adam, Romans 5.12 to 21. He's the son of Adam. This emphasizes that he is true humanity, true humanity. Son of Abraham indicates that he is a Jew and a descendant of Abraham. Son of David emphasizes that he is a descendant of David and that he is the heir to the Davidic covenant. Son of Adam, that he is truly man. And then point number six, the fourth title, he is the son of man. The son of man. And this emphasizes his humanity, but it goes beyond that. 
It emphasizes his humanity, but it goes far beyond that. It is a term that is used in Daniel chapter 7, a term that is used in Daniel chapter 7 of the divine king that comes to lead the fifth kingdom that destroys the other four world kingdoms. And Daniel 7 outlines those world kingdoms, Babylon and Media Persia and Greece and then Rome. And Rome is pictured as an almost indescribable, uh, indescribably vicious beast. And then it is the fifth king who is not a beast but a man, picturing the fact that he is the ideal man. He is the perfect man as opposed to the best that man can do. No matter how endeared you may be to politics today, no matter how wonderful you may think our president is, no matter how dedicated you may be to some political philosophy, the best that man can do prior to the second coming is to produce a kingdom that is described by God in bestial terms. Now think about that. The best that we can do is described by God as having the characteristics of a beast. So we have a tendency to idolize certain elements of Greek culture or Roman culture or different empires. We have ways of idolizing the founding fathers of this country and the political philosophy on which this country is built. But in God's eyes, it's all tainted by sin and is therefore bestial, and it will never produce anything that is close to a perfect society. So quit trying to to do it. Get off. Don't worry about it. You're always going to be disappointed by every king, ruler, congressman, senator, judge, whatever, whatever the political party, they'll fail because they're fallen sinners. And it is the only time that we have a perfect ruler is when the Son of Man comes, and that takes place at the second coming. And so the title Son of Man stresses his human nature and his coming as the ruler of the fifth and final kingdom in human history, establishing what we call the millennial kingdom, the dispensation of the messianic kingdom described in Revelation uh, chapter 20. So the fourth title is Son of Man. That's point number six, seven. Point number seven, the fifth sonship title is he is called the Son of Mary, Mark 6, 3. This is a title in reference to his humanity and to the fact that he is not the son of Joseph. He is the son of Mary. He is a virgin conceived and virgin born. So the title Son of Mary emphasizes his relationship to his mother. Now, Mary is not said to be the mother of God. There was a tremendous controversy related to in the early church. Uh, they went along with these, the, this is called all the Christological controversies that went along in the 5th century after the Council of Nicaea, various attempts to identify uh, the relationship between deity and humanity, and so they argued about the term theotakos, and Christotakos, God-bearer, Christ-bearer. And the issue is that Mary was not the God-bearer. She did not give birth to God. She is the mother of Jesus' humanity, period. She is not the mother of God. That's where that terminology came from that entered into uh, the Roman Catholic uh, cult is the that uh, Jesus is, that, that Mary was the mother of God. She is only the mother of the humanity of Jesus. Now then point number point number 8 and the sixth sonship title is the one that relates to his deity and that is the title son of God. Son of God and that title is found in Luke 3:38. It is a uh an important title for Jesus. Now one of the things that we need to do, and we did this to some degree last time in detail, is to look at what this term son of means, because our tendency is to think that if you're somebody's son, that they gave birth to you, that the term son of has to do with with birth or beginning or fatherhood, gener- something being generated. And yet, I pointed out last time that this is really a Hebrew idiom. It may mean that X gave birth to Y, but it has many other um, connotations in the Scriptures. It is used in terms of that sort of generative sense 
in Luke 1.35, where the angel announces that Jesus will be called the Son of God, and in the context, he's talking about Mary giving birth to Jesus. But there's more to it than simply that, as we saw last time. There is a Trinitarian sense in which the term Son of God is a technical term for the second person of the Trinity. It's a technical term for the second person of the Trinity, and it emphasizes his deity. Now, there's a there's been debate in church history over just when Jesus becomes the Son of God. Now, to debate when Jesus becomes the Son of God presupposes that you are assuming the term has something to do with generation. Now, if it doesn't have anything to do with generation, then it has some other meaning, then you won't get trapped in that debate, so don't get trapped in the debate. That's why I spent time last week going through the term Son of God. Now, there are those who think that he became the Son of God at his birth, at his physical birth. That's wrong. There are others who think that he became the Son of God at his baptism. For example, in Matthew 3:16 and 17, we read, After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens says, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is not when he became the Son of God. Another time that he is said to have become the Son of God is in Matthew 17.5, Mark 9.7, Luke 9.35, Second Peter 1.17, at the time of transfiguration. That's Matthew 17.5 and any good look at your study Bible will give you the cross-references. At the time of the Mount of Transfiguration, when once again the Father said, This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. But he doesn't become the Son at that particular point. And as we'll see, there are those who think that in Romans 1, because of statements in Romans 1, 3, and 4, and Acts 13, 22 to 23, uh, excuse me, Acts 13, 32 to 33, that he becomes the Son of God at the resurrection. But see, what happens is that you have, you have these different events at his birth, at his baptism, at transfiguration, and at the resurrection, these four different events, each time God affirms that he is the Son of God. Was he the Son of God before the incarnation? Of course he was. He is eternally the Son of God. And that is foundational to understanding who he is. And last time I looked at that by looking at the terminology and how the phrase Son of is used in the Scriptures. And just a couple of examples for review. For example, in Numbers 17.10, The Lord said to Moses, put back the rod of Aaron before the testimony to be kept as a sign against the rebels. And in the Hebrew, it says the son of rebels. See, this was an adjectival idiom in in Hebrew, that if you are something, you would be called the son of something, because you picture, you're pictured as a descendant of that attribute, whatever it might be. So if they are called the sons of rebels, it doesn't mean that their parents were rebels. It means that they are a rebel. Job 30, verse 8, it doesn't say it in the English. It just says fools, even those without a name. But the Hebrew text says sons of fools. So again, we see that the phrase son of indicates a characteristic of a particular individual. First Samuel 25:17 uses the phraseology "worthless man" in the English, literally in the Hebrew. It is a son of Belial. Belial was a uh, notoriously uh, worthless idol, and so is, the idiom was that he's no more value than an empty, empty idol. So the conclusion we reached last time is that titles such as the Son of God or even the Son of Man do not indicate derivation. See, son of man doesn't indicate that he is the son of a man. Joseph was not his physical father. There was no male involved in the uh, generation of Jesus, no human, human male involved in the generation of Jesus. So terms like son of God and son of man are adjectival attributions indicating that Jesus is fully God and fully man. The term son of David uh, indicates his inheritance, that he's classified among the Davidic heirs. So the question then becomes, when did Jesus become 
a son. When did he become a son? Now, there are those who will go to some different passages in the Old Testament, one of which is in Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. Now, we've looked at Psalm 2 a time or two, and we'll look at it many, many times. It's one of the uh, more frequently quoted psalms in the New Testament. So I have 2-7 up on the overhead, but you might want to turn in your Bibles to Psalm 2 as we pick up a little context. The context of Psalm 2 is the second coming. It is a prophetic psalm. It looks forward to events that transpire around the time of the Battle of Armageddon as all of the armies of man amass themselves against God. And so it begins with the question, why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So right there we see that there are two personages at the beginning. There is Yahweh and the Mashiach, his anointed, the Messiah. And the kings and their arrogance say, let us break their bonds in pieces, and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh, and the Lord shall hold them in derision, and he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. So who is speaking in verse 6? See, notice in your Bible, verse 6 is set off with quotation marks. So who is speaking? It is the Lord. It is Yahweh. Remember, you've got to follow the person, the people here. So important. You have two people. You have the Lord, uppercase, which is Yahweh. And then you have his anointed, the Mashiach. So you have two personages, Yahweh and Messiah. And Yahweh is speaking in verse 6. He says, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Jesus Christ returns to the second coming to Zion. To um, He actually sets down on, on the Mount of Olives, and then he establishes himself on Mount Zion. So Yahweh here talks about the fact that he establishes his king on Zion. And then you have another statement. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. Wait a minute. The Lord, Yahweh, says, verse 6, okay? I've set my king on my holy hill. So who's speaking in verse 7? I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. So you have this. The person speaking here is defined as me, and the Lord is speaking to me. The me, then, can only be the anointed Messiah and the king who are the same person. Okay, the Lord has said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So now we bring in that other piece of important terminology, begotten. Today I have begotten you. Now we think of begotten as something that is generated or made. Now, this terminology does not mean that. It can mean that. It doesn't necessarily mean that. And this was clear in the articulation of the relationship between the first and second person of the Trinity in the in the early creeds that Jesus was created, that is, in his humanity. He was, he was uh, begotten, not made. Okay, that's how they phrased it. He was begotten not made. The begottenness is viewed as eternal. This is the eternal relationship expressing, or this is a word expressing the eternal relationship between the Father and the Son. It is an eternal relationship. Now, it looks, if you look at that verse 7 very carefully, it looks as if The Father is saying to the Son, You are my Son, today I have begotten you. As if it it is today at the time of his being installed as king on Mount Zion is the day of his being begotten. But he's all, we know from 
the Gospels that he's been declared to be the Son at his at his at his uh, baptism and at, uh, at the Transfiguration. Also, Romans indicates that it's at, at resurrection. That's not how this should be understood here. It is a causative verb here. It could be in either the form of it could be in either the cow stem or hyphial stem. And if it's in the hyphial stem, then what the idea is, I will tell of the decree of the Lord. He has um, he has cause to be declared. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And so what this is emphasizing, what this is emphasizing is that God is causing the declaration to be made at the coronation that Jesus is his son. It is not saying that's when he becomes a son, but it is, in, in fact, the, 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 it's the causative of Yalad there, uh, or the hyphil of Yalad, the word for, um, for begotten, is the Hebrew word Yalad, Y-A-L-A-D. And in the hyphil, what you have here is what today I have caused you to be declared begotten. That's the sense. I have caused you to be declared begotten. In other words, this is operation footstool, not operation footstool. This is, um, this is when at the end of Philippians 2, when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. This is when everyone recognizes his deity and that he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So Psalm 2 is not talking about a time when he becomes begotten, but is talking about the declaration of his rulership at his coronation by God in the future. Jesus Christ is eternally the Son of God. He does not become a son at his birth, baptism, transfiguration, resurrection, ascension, or coronation. He is a son from all eternity. Uh, God the Father sent who? The Son, for God so loved the world that he gave what? His Son. He gave his Son before he was a physical human baby. He gave the Son. The terminology in the Scripture is clear that the Son is a term for his eternality. Uh, for example, Romans 1.3 says concerning his son who was born of a descendant of David. See, his son is born. Sonship precedes in the flow of the thought in Romans 3, his being born a descendant of David. He, and then Romans 1.4, he was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. That doesn't mean that that was when he became the son of God, but the resurrection declared that this was already true, that he was the Son of God. Other passages in the New Testament, for example, Hebrews 1, 1 through 5, emphasizes this aspect and also quotes from Psalm 2, 7. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us, by means of his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So the term his Son recognizes a title. This expresses the relationship of the first to the second person of the Trinity. I want you to think of something else about this as we go through our study. That when, if Jesus is the Son before the fall, I mean before the birth, if Jesus is the Son before the before the birth, then this is expressing something inherent in the relationship between the first and second person of the Trinity. Now, what we tend to do is we always think backwards. We think from our experience of father and son, and we look at the relationship between the first and second person as being analogous to our experience. This is some sort of anthropomorphism. 
It's a theomorphism. See, the designation of a human father and son is built on the model of the relationship between the first person and the second person of the Trinity. If you want to learn what it means to be a father, you better look at how God the Father relates to God the Son. If you want to know what it means to be a son, you look at the relationship between the son to the father. See, that's the model. There's something inherent in the relationship of the first person and the second person of the Trinity as to why they are called father and son from all eternity before there's creation, those terms apply. And whatever that is, that element is what is essential and at the core of being a human father and son. So the writer of Hebrews goes on to say in verse 3, and he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, that is, full deity and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. So he it indicates that above the angels he is a son, he is fully God. And again, a uh, he quotes from Psalm 89, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. Then in Hebrews 5.5, 5, So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee, just as he says also in another passage, Thou art a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who is able to save him from death, and he heard him because of his piety. And, verse 8, this is where it heads, Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. See, it's treating sonship as this is who Jesus is in his person. He is a son. And even though he was a son, that is, the son of God, even though he was a son, full deity, he had to learn obedience from the things which he suffered. Now, of course, this, we'll cover this passage in detail when we get to the impeccability of Christ. But a lot of people say, well, if he was perfect, why did he have to learn obedience? Now, there's a little fallacy going on here. Did you have to learn, did you have to commit murder in order to learn that murder was wrong? No. So you don't have to do something wrong to learn the principle of obedience and not and to not do something. So he still had to learn obedience. Adam, before the fall, was learning obedience. Each time he made a decision not to eat from the fruit, however long that went, one day, two days, three days, however long it went before Adam ate of the fruit, he was... As long as he was obedient, he was learning obedience. He just never reached maturity. At each point he made that decision, he was learning obedience, not by being disobedient. See, in our post-fall carnal bodies, we think learning obedience has to be in the context of disobedience. But that's because we're looking uh, at the ground from a below-ground level. You know, we're, we're looking up to see the gutter. Yeah. Neither Adam nor the Lord were down below the gutter. We're down below the gutter, so we can't learn obedience any other way. But that doesn't mean that there is no other way to learn obedience. So Jesus is undiminished deity. So that concludes our look at the at the titles of Christ, the titles that are applied to his deity. Now, there are other titles in the Old Testament for Jesus, but we will look at them under their proper category in terms of the humanity of Christ. The next line of reasoning, which emphasizes the deity of Christ in the Old Testament, relates to theophanies. Theophanies. T-H-E-O-P-H-A-N-I-E-S. So the first thing we looked at to establish his deity was the titles, names ascribed to him. Next we have theophanies from the Greek word theos, T-H-E-O-S, and phanos, P-H-A-N-O-S. Theos means God, phanos means a manifestation or appearance. So Technically, the word means a manifestation or appearance of God. However, we know from the New Testament, 
in John 1.18 that no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. So if no one has seen God at any time, then you didn't have a manifestation of God the Father in the Old Testament. So a theophany can't be a manifestation of God the Father in the Old Testament. It must be a manifestation of God the Son in the Old Testament. So therefore, a definition of theophany is the appearance of the second person of the Trinity prior to the Incarnation. Now, as we look at the theophanies in the Old Testament, the majority of them have to do with the angel of the Lord, this personage, the angel of the Lord. And I remember when I was a young man getting in a discussion with a, with a mentor of mine who didn't want to believe that the angel of the Lord was really God, uh, was God the Son. So we have to look at a few passages. I mentioned this last time. And there'll be a lot of what, I I won't call it review, but there's a certain amount of cycling back as we go through uh, the doctrine of Christology. You will see those Hebrew passages again and again and again will constantly cycle back because they have to do with more than one uh, element in the... uh, in dealing with Christology. So the angel of the Lord first appears in Genesis 16:7. So turn with me and I just want to look at one or two examples of the appearance of the angel of the Lord. In chapter 16 of Genesis we have two main characters, Sarai and Avram. They have not been given their new names yet. And, but they have been given a promise by God of a child. And at this time, they are, uh, Avram is about the age of 86. And he hasn't had a child yet. And Sarai is beginning to get a little impatient at the fact that God keeps promising, but there's no pregnancy. So she comes to Avram and she says, well, the Lord must be restraining me. You know, blame God. Restraining me from bearing children, go into my maid. I got a better idea. He's promised a descendant. You know, take my maid as your concubine, which was a legitimate practice in the ancient Near East. If the wife was barren, then her servant could take her place, sort of the ancient world's version of, uh, you know, what do they call it? substitute? Uh, surrogate motherhood, yes. This is the ancient world's version of surrogate motherhood. And so Hagar is going to be the surrogate, except it's accomplished through the, just the old-fashioned means of procreation. And Hagar becomes pregnant, and as soon as that happens, uh, Sarai becomes jealous. No comment on the rationality of the whole situation here. And she becomes... Uh, uh, to treat uh, Hagar with with uh, jealousy, disrespect, contempt, and and she treats her harshly, and so uh, Avram uh, tells Sarai just to do with her however she wants, and so Sarai then just treats her in a very uh, humiliating manner. The text says, and kicks her out, and so Hagar leaves. And it's a situation of tremendous injustice and maltreatment. So the angel of the Lord appears to her in verse 7. Now the angel of Yahweh found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. Now the word angel here is a translation of the Hebrew malach, which means messenger. That's what the word means. That's the essence of angel, is messenger. So this pictures this personage as being a messenger sent from God. Now that's important because that's the exact role of God the Son in the plan of God is one who is sent from God. So the angel of Yahweh finds her by a spring of water and says to her, verse 8, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from? Where are you going? Notice God always asks these rhetorical questions. We've seen that in our study in Genesis. He wants us to focus and concentrate on our present circumstances. First of all, not to sit there and wallow in whatever the circumstances are. So where have you come from? Where are you going? And she tells him, and then the angel of the Lord says, Return to your mistress and submit to, your, to yourself under her hand. 
And then the angel of the Lord said, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And it goes on to tell her that you are with a child, you shall bear a son, you shall name him Ishmael, and because the Lord has heard your affliction. Now, the only thing that I want to emphasize here is that this is an expression of two things. The, the integrity of God, because it is Hagar, Hagar's and it's terribly unjust situation. It's the integrity of God and the grace of God are expressed through the actions of the angel of Yahweh. The next place that we have the angel specifically mentioned is in Genesis 22:11-18, which is the situation where uh, Abraham now, now named Abraham, is told by God to take Isaac, his only begotten son, up on Mount Moriah and to sacrifice him. And I want you to note in verse 1 of that chapter, Now it came to pass after these things that God, that is Elohim, tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and then we have the description. And throughout this passage, God is referred to as Elohim. And then when he gets to the point where he's about to uh, sacrifice Isaac, it is the angel of the Lord in verse 11, but the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, so he said, here I am, he said, do not lay, lay your hand on the ladder, do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from who? Me. So here the angel of the Lord is saying, you haven't withheld your son from me, but who was it who told him to sacrifice the son to begin with? Elohim. So it's a clear identification of the angel of the Lord with Elohim. Uh, I missed one point there at the end of Hagar's uh, episode. She identifies the uh, angel of the Lord as the God who sees uh, and so she recognizes that the angel of the Lord is is God back in Genesis 16, 7. So in both of these passages, Genesis 16, 7, Genesis 22, 11 to 18, we see that the angel is identified with God. Other passages that do this as well are Genesis 24, 7 and 40, which indicates God sending his angel uh, to provide a, a, a bride for Isaac. Uh, Genesis 31:11 uh, to 48 as well. You can also look at passages such as Exodus 3:1 and in Judges 6:11 to 23, Gideon worships the angel of the Lord and in fact calls the angel of the Lord Yahweh. So in all of these passages, the angel of the Lord is identified with God. But there are some passages where the angel of the Lord is seen as being distinct from God. For example, in Genesis 24. Verse 7, God sends his angel before the servant of Abraham as he goes forth. And God says, the Lord God of heaven who took me from my father's house and from the land of my family says, I will send, uh, he will, I will send, or he will send his angel before you. So there are passages that make the angel distinct, passages that make the angel identical. And then in Zechariah 3, verse 2, it indicates the two personages together indicating the full deity of the angel of the Lord. So the angel of the Lord is your primary theophany in the Old Testament, but there are a couple of others. For example, in Genesis 18:1-33, God appears as a man with two with two angels to Avram. They're invited in, they sit down with Abraham, and they eat their meal together. So God is not specified there as the angel of the Lord. He is simply stated as God. You have another appearance of God to the 70 elders of Israel in Exodus, when he appears to the 70 elders of Israel. And then one of my favorite theophanies in the Old Testament is the appearance of the Lord of hosts, which literally means, it's the Hebrew word Shabbat, which means armies. That's what host means. I think Dan was in a Hebrew class, and he translated it, Lord of the Armies, and his Hebrew professor said, no, you need to translate that Lord of hosts. See, sometimes these seminary professors have their feet firmly anchored in the past, 
But if you look up the word host in any English dictionary, the first definition is army. They're so grounded in their Hebrew, they forget the English. Lord of the armies. And you have such passages as Psalm 2410. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. So this identifies the king, that is Jesus, the Messiah, that's the king of glory, with the Lord of the army. So that manifestation is the Lord Jesus Christ. Psalm 59.5 is another reference. You, O Lord, God of the armies, Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel. That is an identification with the second person of the Trinity. And then what brings us back to a passage we mentioned at the very beginning. A child will be born to us, a son will be given. See, that implies, again, that terminology, a son is given. He's not given then a son. A son is what's given to us. A child will be born to us, a son is given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. So there we have this emphasis on the deity of this child. Father of Eternity, Prince of Peace, Verse 7, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of the armies will accomplish this. So there is another connection between the Lord of the hosts and the child who is given on that first Christmas that we celebrate this week. So do not become distracted this week with all the parties, all the gift-giving, traveling, eating, overeating. Focus on Christ, who is the reason for celebrating. Jesus Christ was not just some man. Jesus Christ is eternal God, who became flesh. He entered into human history. The eternal creator took on humanity for a purpose, and that was to go to the cross, to die on the cross for our sins. He has paid the price. So the issue is to receive it just as you receive any gift. Now, people get all wrapped around the axle of Christmas that so-and-so gave me a gift. I need to give them a gift. Well, that may be polite. That may be good manners. It isn't grace orientation. Because then you have to do something for it. See, in the Bible, you don't do anything for it. God just gives you the free gift over and out. People who can't accept a free gift have a terrible time understanding grace. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this time to study your word, to focus on the person of our Savior. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation, uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. It's not a matter of what you've done. Every sin's been paid for by Christ on the cross. It's not a matter of making a deal with God or moral reformation, cleaning up your life, getting involved in some sort of religious activity. It's simply a matter of trusting in the promise of the Scriptures, putting your faith alone in Christ alone. The instant you do that, you have eternal life. You're adopted into the royal family of God, and you have an eternal destiny that can never be taken from you. Father, we pray that you would help us to remember the things that we've studied today, to make them a focus, especially this week as we celebrate Christmas, not forgetting who our Savior is. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.